Good afternoon, Zinger Nation. Welcome to Moon or Bust Flight 96 today, Ryan. We're getting pl- pretty close to 100 episodes of Moon or Bust. Pretty exciting. Learned a lot along the way. Experienced a lot along the way. Today is one of those special days, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. We're on show 96. We're four away. Slowly but surely, we're getting there to 100 episodes. That's a lot of hours on Moon or Bust here at Benzinga. I'm excited for that. If you haven't seen the previous episodes, make sure you go check out the playlist. Hopefully this video is already in there. If not, just search up Moon or Bust. We have tons of interviews with some of the craziest people in the crypto, Web3, investing, NFT space. Uh, Make sure you go check it out. Tons of value just sitting around back there. We have some crazy rare interviews with like no views they're going to do. In retrospect, well, those will out. be so cool. Let's those will be so out. cool. What were some okay, Billy, Billy Marcus, creator of Dogecoin. We're like one of five people to have a recorded interview with him. Yeah. yeah Has like a, a few one. thousand views. That was one of my favorites. He's we got cool Tim Draper. Too. Right? I thought, I thought he'd be like an odd guy creating Dogecoin back in 2013. Right? But he was a chiller. And it's cool he's back in the space now because he was gone for like five years and came back mm-hmm. just like maybe a year ago. Yeah, shout out to Billy Marcus. The man is a G. We've had other crazy people um, like Tim Draper, one of the OG venture capitalists, one of the first big VCs out there, started the the big movement that we see today. Ryan, what were some of your favorite shows, if any, are coming to mind right now? I really liked one of the sleeper ones I thought was, uh, what was his name? The one about special economic zones. That one was really interesting. Yeah, with Tebow. Tebow, yeah. Tebow, that one was awesome. The research he's doing is insane. If you want to like look into something other than crypto that's still relevant to crypto, that's a really good one. Special economic zones I knew nothing about before that interview, so I learned a lot from that one. Mm-hmm. On the crypto side of things, I thought Cosmos was really cool. We had a couple with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peng Zong, the, the C- CEO, co-founder. Yeah, CEO of Tendermint. CEO of Tendermint. Um, yeah, that one was good. Also, David Sun. David we've we've Sun, had our friend David Sun on to talk about proof of beauty multiple times. Some of the most insane tokenomics crypto project I've ever seen. Go watch those three interviews with David Sun 100%. We've had Audius. We've had uh, former gamification employees from Microsoft, um, you know, Star Atlas, you name it. Go check out the list. That's enough of that. Let's move on to a little bit of the markets. So, Ryan, I know we have a lot of NFT stuff to cover, um, but I want to toss it out to the chat. Out to Zinger Nation, drop a comment. Let me know what crypto projects or NFT projects you are looking at this week. If you have any trade ideas, go ahead and drop them below and we can put them up on the screen. What's up, Kindred? I see you out there as always. Hope you're doing well. Um, But, Ryan, let's talk NFTs. I'm going to share my screen uh, and and we'll get into it. Speaking of NFTs, Logan, I muted my first word ever on Twitter Moonbirds. to get away from something. Yeah, I, I muted Moonbird, actually. Moonbird. So I still saw a lot of stuff about Moonbirds because okay. most people said Moonbirds. So if I was smart, I would have muted Moonbirds instead of Moonbird. <laughs> you can do uh, both. I could do both, yeah. I probably <laughs> should. Um. All right, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us a little bit better layout and make this not full screen so bear with me for two seconds we'll take a look at the nft markets but ryan moonbirds what the heck are moonbirds i saw these popping up i was like oh is this another invisible friends like around 10 eth um you know getting a lot of hype a lot of traction when it came out didn't really know a whole lot about it and was basically already priced out so i kind of ignored it but ryan what's the scoop on the moonbirds 
Well, they were oversubscribed by like four times, but that's really not that much. You had like a 25% chance of getting one if you signed up to be on the whitelist. And I think there's 10,000 of them. There might be 12,000. But yeah, they were oversubscribed by four times. So you had good chances of getting one on the drop. But it was a really expensive drop, so I wasn't really interested. It was two and a half ETH to mint it, which is insanely high. But I guess it was worth it because they over 10x in just a few days, which is absolutely insane. Last I checked, they were at like a 35 ETH floor. so went from two and a half ETH about like eight thousand dollars up to now it's at like over ninety thousand, close to a hundred thousand dollars in the span of a week, which is absolutely insane. Uh, but I'm not really sure about the utility, what they're really trying to do with it. Uh, but Proof Collective made it, and they're really, really well connected. So I'm assuming that's why the price has gone up. I've heard some talks that this is also like VC money coming in and investing in it, and that's pushing up the floor. One of the most notable things I saw about Moonbirds is the actual volume of trading going on on OpenSea with it. It's absolutely insane. It blew every other collection out of the water by far. It was like 60,000 Ethereum traded uh, on Moonbirds in just the first couple days, which is way, way more than anything else. Like Bored Apes usually have maybe 10, 15,000 of Ethereum per day on, on a bigger day, and Mutants probably around the same amount. Like Azukis were at the top forever with about 15 to 20,000 ETH in volume. So we saw this came out and it absolutely ripped, unlike anything I've even seen before. I mean, all the other all the other mints would go up to like maybe six, 10 ETH, but 35 ETH in the span of a week, that's absolutely insane. Uh, something I'll definitely have to look into more and keep you guys updated, but I'm not super familiar on the so, utility right okay, now. Okay, I thought, I thought since you wanted to talk about it today, you would have done the research yeah. before. Um, but here's what I know um, is that this project was started by a guy named Kevin Rose. He's the, the uh, you know, figurehead behind it. He's the founder of Proof XYZ and a partner at True Ventures, Silicon Valley-based VC firm. Um, And I think that's why a lot of the trading volume has been so unusual, right? Maybe these connections have something to do with it. Um, Maybe it's organic. Maybe it's uh, a mechanic, right? Maybe they're spending a lot of money on their own project to drive up hype, drive up the volume. Um, You know, whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I will leave that to the market to decide. Apparently right now, they like it because it's at 32, but we will see where this project goes. I think that the the art is different than what we've normally seen, and it's not like the craziest thing, but I think it works really well as a PFP. When you see them on Twitter, um, you know, it, it looks good. What do you think, Ryan? What do you think about the art on the Moonbirds? I like the art, and I think it's important that they're different too, like you mentioned. So many are so similar, and we've seen pixelated collections, but not so much like this one. Mm-hmm. So let's take a look at the stats. Top of OpenSea is Moonbirds. Below that, we have the Murakami Flowers. I don't know if these are ever going to reveal. I don't even know how this this, uh, process works or this project works. So we'll move on past that. One we do know a little bit about, Mutant Ape Yacht Club. 33.5 ETH floor. Is that an all-time high? It's an all-time high. Not only is it an all-time high, but they just reached a six-figure price floor, I think, this morning or last night. That's awesome. So in celebration, we are dropping the rarest hat on all of Benzinga swag. It has our apes on it. It has Moon or Bust on the side. If you're an OG Moon or Bust viewer, you know you got to have one of these. We're going to get more with individual, with our individual apes. Mine has that pink fur, uh, but we couldn't get that many colors on, on the combo one. So we'll get more coming on. Uh, and speaking of coming on today's episode, we have a guest. We didn't even talk about that at all. That's going to be really exciting. So 
our guest on Moon or Bust today is a, a personal friend of mine, very uh, insightful and inspirational fellow 21-year-old. Uh, his name is Grant McCarty, and he works in the Bitcoin space very, very heavily, does a lot of insane things in the Bitcoin space. It's a name you will hear in the future, I promise you. So we're going to have him on today to, to talk to him, get that in, get those insights into BTC and also into Washington, D.C., how Bitcoin policy and adoption is coming along in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you are subscribed to Benzinga if you're not. Smash the like if you're enjoying today's content or if you learned anything. Um, let us know in the chat what coins you are trading right now. We still got just Kindred out there. I want everybody who's, we got 83 viewers. I want 83 different, different people to comment right now. What projects are exciting you, interesting you right now? Logan, you leave me for a week to go to Bitcoin Miami. Come back. We don't do a show. Come back today, and we're doing a Bitcoin episode. Yeah. Did Bitcoin Miami change you? Yeah, dude. It did. It did a lot. Maybe I'll, maybe we could talk about this for a second. I'll take my screen share off. Bitcoin Miami did change me. So do you have like, I guess, let, let me collect my thoughts and give you my impressions on how Bitcoin Miami changed me exactly. Because uh, I think the first thing that it's that stuck out to me was the hesitancy of these people to associate with the term crypto or, or the rest of cryptocurrency, right? They said, no, it's not crypto. This is not a crypto conference. It's Bitcoin. This is a Bitcoin conference. And I was like, well, Bitcoin is, you know, a, a cryptocurrency technology. It's a blockchain-based technology. Why would they not, you know, like say that, right? What's, what, what's their point? What are they getting at? And, and I think that from their perspective, Bitcoin adoption is being harmed by the shit coins that we see out here, the safe moons, the rugs, uh, you know, all this crazy stuff that's, that's going on, all this malice that's going on in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, they want to disassociate all of that, push it all to the side um, so that Bitcoin has its best shot at, you know, really changing the way the world works, changing the way we look at value, at money, um, and, and like what does it mean to to store value, to have value, change fiat currencies. The dream of everyone in crypto, I think, um, which is what I came to the conclusion of, is like we are all, we need Bitcoin to succeed for the rest of crypto to succeed. So if they want to push the rest of crypto away to do that, that's fine. By all means, go for it, have fun, do your thing. But also realize that there is good stuff going on in the rest of crypto as well, right? So I came to understand their perspective a little bit more. I wouldn't consider my actually. I, I'm like I'm kind of a BTC maxi a little bit, a little bit, a little bit no, more now. No, that's on air. That's recorded forever. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: is like. I like to be a degen because I'm 21 years old and I can afford to take risks right now. For most people though, like just buy Bitcoin and forget about it, right? Put it in cold storage and forget about it, right? And, and like, I think that's an important narrative that a lot of people who are really deep into crypto, myself included, ha have missed or kind of lost along the way, right? There's so, so much stuff going on in crypto. Uh, there's so much noise. Bitcoin is this overarching signal. And I think that we have to respect it and thank it for that. 
So at Bitcoin Miami, was it mostly about Bitcoin or was it about like infrastructure surrounding Bitcoin? Did you hear anything about the Lightning Network while you were at Bitcoin Miami? And did you hear anything about like these other new layer twos that are using Bitcoin security to try and scale Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin Lightning Network was a huge focus of the event. My favorite announcement and the most significant announcement at all of BTC Miami was the Jack Mahler's uh was his speech, was his presentation, and his announcements for his company, Strike. If you're not familiar with Strike, it is scaling the Bitcoin Lightning Network across the world, and it is finally hitting the U.S. this year. So what that looks like, right? They have teamed up with uh, the biggest point-of-sale company in all of America, right? One out of six places you swipe a card, use this terminal service. I think it's called PCR. Um. And what that will do is this partnership is that instead of when you swipe your card, it goes through the banks to another bank, to another bank, to another bank, to the other, uh, you know, point of service terminal or to the to the uh, receiver. You replace the whole thing with Bitcoin, right? You replace it with Lightning Network. It's the first innovation in this middle payment processing system since 1947 right and like maybe we could play a clip from his speech i thought it was was really interesting he talked about the history of credit cards of diners club cards uh, and then made us realize that we haven't innovated since then right uh you know visa started bank of america i didn't realize that i learned that during his his presentation um so on that note bitcoin will be you can you, you can buy Hold on, let me see if I can find this video because it's definitely worth. Uh, you can use Strike to check out anywhere in the world, and that will use your uh, your Tor Bitcoin node at home. So you can go to the gas station, and what he did is he bought Coke on Tor at the gas station as a little joke. Uh, let's see, let's see. All right. I Is there am, a reason you need to use Tor and not just like your Bitcoin address? No, for you, privacy, if you want to. Privacy. Yeah. Okay, so it's optional. Totally optional thing. Yep. Uh, the This is the one. Okay. Let me stop this screen share and share my tab so we can watch a little bit of this. Um, Ryan, have you seen this yet by chance? No, I haven't. Okay. You're going to like. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Good. Market product, not just a uh, plutocrat, caviar, that's a huge okay quick uh, it also fancy duck will be cheaper be faster more innovative and more inclusive we think the financial system will benefit from all these properties if we could do that but what does that mean what actually is a, a payment network like what what if I were to be able to help do that what would I replace like so a payment network is a network that facilitates payment transactions between the merchant issuer 
i.e. the requester, the merchant, and the source of <laughs> this fucking definition. Ooh, fancy definition, right? A, a payment network more or less just facilitates this. Story as old as time. You got a dude who wants to buy stuff, and you got a store that wants to sell stuff. And a payment network is a network that helps facilitate that. So what's the history of payment networks? And where are we now? So, real quick, uh, it all started off with a bunch of rich bureaucrats in New York City that didn't want to carry cash. They were going to fancy dinners in New York, they were ordering like, how much caviar am I going to order? I don't know how much ca I think caviar tastes like shit, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, teach their own, right? They had this problem. Uh, and there's this club called Diners Club in the 1940s. And they didn't know how much caviar they were going to order every night. That's a huge inconvenience, how much cash I got to carry around. They figured there'd be a better way to go about this, to solve this problem. Super simple, guys. This is a really simple problem. Someone wants to pay for something. And so the founder of this diner's club, this bro named Frank, Frank the Caviar Tank, he, he's like, hey, what if we issued a card? Let the people keep the cash at home, issue the card, they'll pay with the card. And the very first card in the very first payment network is called the Diners Club, 1949. So boom, we got our history of payment networks, 1949. We got our little timeline. We're going to blitz through this shit. Soon after that, they realized, man, what a convenience to the consumer. And Bank of America announced the Bank America card. It was going to make this a mass market product, not just a plutocrat, caviar, buffet product in New York City. Uh, and they launched the Bank of America card in 1958. Boom, bang. History of payment networks. We're innovating, 1958. After that, American Express just copied the whole thing later on in 1958. Except they just charged a little bit more to be premium, right? That's the American Express. I love, I love this thing. Most credit cards are given away free. Most of our Competitors give you the thing for free. Not us. Ooh. <laughs> Not us. It's only funny because it's how it works today. Amex, baby. Black card, bro. And they launched in 1958 as well, so we move on. Then a little later, 1966, there's a bank in Buffalo, New York. And they applied to issue AmeriCards. They're like, man, this shit is cool. People aren't carrying cash. Consumers want to use this card thing. Hey, Bank of America, can I issue this card? And they were like, no chance. This is a closed network, poppy. No way. And the small banks were like, fuck you. <laughs> like, who are you to tell me I can't, what? I didn't know that's how this worked. I didn't know that there was someone that got to decide who's involved and who's not. And so they launched the interbank card at the time, you recognize these logos, they called a master charge. And boom, we move on. We're in 1966. A little later, Bank of America is like, shit, all these other banks are creating competing networks with us, and we're not really innovating, we're not really getting any bigger. And so they gave up control of their payments network and recruited the other top big banks to collude and remain on top, which later became Visa in 1976. 
Did you know that? Did you know Bank of America founded Visa? I bet you Crazy did. shit, right, Ryan? Mm -hmm. And look at these, look at these boomers innovating. <laughs> look at these guys pivoting with their startup. I love it. I fucking love it. I feel you. Same thing for me. All right, 1976 Visa. We move on. Then, of course, Master Charge was feeling the pressure, feeling the heat. All the big banks, it's called Visa. They pivoted. They're like, what's Master Charge? That doesn't make any sense. We need to rebrand to MasterCard. Another boomer. I was on a boomer New York Times binge last night. And so, boom, we go to MasterCard. And then the last piece of this is in 1981, the Diners Club got acquired by a little-known group called City. And that card is now known as Discover. Now, the whole reason I just ran through that is uh, the buck stops there. <laughs> I mean, when you go out tonight, you're using one of these payment networks. That's ridiculous. There's been no innovation. There's been no competition. Right? In fact, these, this doesn't even count. I take these off. These, you can't just change your name, the fuck. So, <laughs> so we take that out, right? And so, in reality, payment networks have not innovated in over 50 years. That's insane. That is insane. You're telling me this problem of I want to pay for something has not. All right, quick, quick pause. I'm going to jump forward a little bit uh, to where he explains the announcements, the innovations and how he's integrating Bitcoin, where that fits into all of this. Ryan, what are your takeaways so far uh, on the, the history of these card networks? Also, just Jack in general. Jack Mahlers is the 28 year old CEO. One of the most inspirational people that I had no clue about before this event. Yeah, I'm still not familiar with Jack. He seems like a really cool dude. But yeah, there's like, what, four card processors that have the entire market. So there really isn't any innovation going on and nothing has happened. I mean, that's pretty well known. It's interesting how it all started, too, with the diner's card. Uh, but yeah, time for some innovation. And that's what he's doing, right? Yep. All right. Back to the clip. Uh, for go. a second, if we added this one to it, finally, dust the cobwebs off. And we add a new payment network to it, the superior payment network to it. One so good you'd think you made it just on like a video game. It's an NBA 2K creator player payment network. I'd scan this QR code to make the $100 transaction. Fuck the boomer card shit. <laughs> I'd be debited 100 bucks. It's me speaking. Now, if there was software that exists, like ours do, Unbeknownst to the user, it'd take my $100. So I'm not touching Bitcoin. S save me with the like Bitcoin's volatile, Bitcoin's this, like Elizabeth Warren. Just let me finish this presentation for a second. <laughs> There's no capital gains tax triggered. There's no volatility. It's all good. Chill. Deep breath. Deep breath, Elizabeth Warren. And it turns it into Bitcoin. It takes the dollars and turns it into the magic internet money thing. And then it hops on to the superior premier. We just went over it, fact, data to data, line by line, the better one, and the magic internet money, pew, at the speed of light, value is moving towards the merchant. And then right before it gets to the merchant, hit the brakes, 
just as it arrives, it goes back into dollars. Okay. So $100 spent, $100 received. There's no waza. There's no 2 to 15 days of settlement. There's no 3%. Bang, bang. NCR. That's, this is what I was talking about earlier, the, the payment network. One in six Because we just got to give merchants the, the new superior alternative payment network. And so this year, use one of these. Also partnered with the largest provider in the entire planet, NCR. Yeah. They also integrated with Shopify. So here, let me show you the tour process now that I was talking about. Because we just got to give merchants the new superior alternative payment network. And so... Also, these Walmart, restaurants Macy's. Bitcoin this year. Mm -hmm. Best Buy. I mean, no, no. This is not in another country. This is not a test pilot somewhere. No, this is in the United States of America. You're going to be able to walk in to a grocery store, to Whole Foods, to Chipotle. You want to use a lightning note over tour? You do that. You want to use the cash app? You do that. So how's he actually improving the payment network though? Isn't this generally the same thing as no. what was going on before, but no. they use Bitcoin? No, not how's at all. This different? Not at all. We can get to that. I want to show you this real quick though. Hello. Hey. Can I check out each of these separately? Sure. I'll do the code first. Let's buy some Coke or tour, ladies and gentlemen. Boom. Open payment standard. This grocery the cashier store is so is confused. Open payment standard to receive dollars in their cash register. I could use any Lightning wallet I want. I'm going to go with Zap, which is connected to my Lightning node running over tour at my house. So I simply hit send, scan the QR code, confirm by entering my PIN and Bitcoin is leaving my node over tour as dollars enter her cash register. Boom, I'll go with the peanuts next. Shout out peanuts if you know, you know. And I would go with the one and only cash app. 70 million Americans can do this. I'm simply going to scan the QR code again, enter my pin and confirm the lightning payment. Money is leaving. So that, that's what's cool about it is that he just scanned with cash app paid in USD, and it was transacted over Bitcoin instantly, over the Lightning Network. Yeah, but what's the improvement? So here's what, here's what happens before. Here's what was happening Next. Firstly, but, let's say. So I got my card. They got their point of sale. But there's actually a lot more parties involved when I swipe at the register. There's actually five parties involved. There's the two actually participating, and then there are three intermediaries. First, there's my bank that issued me the card. Next, there's the bank that banks the merchant. And then lastly, there's the card network. So boom, I go swipe. I actually swipe the card. And here's what happens. The point of sale system hits up the merchant's bank and passes that card information. The merchant's bank takes the card info and pulls out a cheat sheet. And they're like, okay, hold on, let me think for a second. American Express is a three, starts with a three. Visa starts with a four. MasterCard starts with a five. Discover starts with a six. Okay, 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 let me pick up the phone. They call the card network. There you go, card network! Take this info. 
And then these boomers, boomers in their fucking cheat sheets, man. So the, then these boomers pick up their cheat sheet. And they're like, okay, hold on. With this card info, did this card come from Chase, Bank of America, City, Wells? Who issued this? And they find the bank. They call them. All right, a three-party call. And the card processor goes, yo. We good? Does Jack have 100 bucks? And then my bank goes, yo. Yeah, we're good. We're good. And then the card network goes, yo, to the merchant bank. We good, baby. And the merchant bank goes, yo. We good. You guys know that Budweiser commercial? Waza. Like, ah, processing payments. <laughs> and so then the merchant bank then calls the point of sale back and they're like, it's all good, man. Us boomers, we check Jack's account. He's got it. He's got it. And they say, cool. Boom. Then they give me a receipt. And because I spent over 25 boomer bucks, I have to sign it <laughs> like the fucking Declaration of Independence. <laughs> <laughs> But then, we're not done, none of the money moved. They just wazzed each other for a second. And the wazzes are fast, right? You've been at Chipotle, it's fast. So the card network goes, we gotta move the money. Like, yo, you guys still here? You still on phone? We gotta actually sell the money. That's my job at the end of the day, that's what I get paid for. And they issue the statement for the $100. Then my bank, this is how it works, I swear to God. My bank goes, yo, I'm just going to keep some of this shit, man. <laughs> Jack's already walking out of Walmart. Nothing they can do about it. I'm just going to take nine, I'll just take a couple bucks. So out of the $100 statement, I'll take, I'll take two. I'll give you 98. And the card network's like, Jesus, man, the brain on you. I'll do that too. <laughs> 97, 75. And then the merchant bank's like, I'm in, right? Let's go. More caviar for me. And then we end up with 97. And so on a $100 transaction, I spent 100 bucks. The merchant gets $97. And the 1949 payment networks take 3%. Right? That's how it works. Literally, what happened? I'm the magic for it. It just did that. And so you're telling me, since 1949, I mean, in 1949, it was probably some super genius shit. They were like, dude, check this. And turns it into Capital gains tax triggered, there's no volatility, it's all good. It takes the dollars and turns it into the magic internet money thing. This is how so, it's And then it hops on. So I, I understand that he's using Bitcoin instead of a payment network, right? Like, I get that, yeah. but what? So the fees are just going to be cheaper? Like, that's good. No, there's no right? fees. Lightning Network is free. Yeah, but he can still charge fees, right? He's not doing the service for free, I assume. No, Strike, strike is for the Lightning Network. Yeah, but Strike doesn't take any fees at all. Is it fee-less? That is a great question that I bet I'd, I'd assume uh, Grant could answer for us in two seconds when he joins. Grant uh, is definitely onboarded to Strike. He can tell us a lot more about it because he put on the Bitcoin event that you just saw Jack Mallers, Strike CEO, speaking at. He works for Bitcoin Inc., the company behind the event, and also the company behind Bitcoin Magazine, as well as probably a few other things uh, we can we can ask him about that and everything else. Drop your comments about Bitcoin, about BTC Miami, about the event, about Strike Lightning Network. Drop them all in the chat right now, uh, and we'll see how many we can get through. But I'm gonna look it up right now. Strike 
um, what what is that revenue source, revenue model? Revenue Boom. Piece, yeah. I didn't go to business school. Um, oh, all right. We have Grant backstage with us. Grant, I I see you back there. Not if you're ready. If you need a few seconds, we can also go for it. Uh, but I see Grant, you're ready. So I'm gonna bring you on right here. And let me do a little switcheroo. Boom. How are you? Oh, shoot. I, I can't hear you. Um, is that on? Check your audio Here's source. at Perfect. Better. Awesome. We can hear you. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I might have a little bit of lag. I really apologize. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. And thanks for having me on. It's all good. We're super excited to have you as well. Grant, you've done a ton of incredible things uh, in your past. And we actually just met two weeks ago at the Bitcoin conference that you had a hand in throwing. So if, if you wouldn't mind for our audience, could you just walk us through you know, your story, how you got into crypto, how you became interested, what motivates you, all these different things, how you ended up where you are today, basically? Wow. All right, uh, that's a loaded question, but we'll take it from the top. Um, I, I was looking for something that uh, I wanted to work in an industry that actually meant something. Um, I worked in uh, startups in the past. I worked in edge marketing. I worked in like things that I was really passionate about. Uh, I... I saw what was happening in, in Silicon Valley. I saw they're pouring their hearts and their souls like into industries that are not necessarily like providing the outcomes that they, these people are looking for. Right. I found like our generation, especially, uh, you know, people around our age, there's like a lot of stuff wrong with the world and people are really actually motivated to like fix those problems. And unfortunately, um, I found that a lot of the solutions to those problems were just like, I don't know, let's make another app, you know? And at a certain point, mm -hmm. um, it kind of hit me. I was like, is this what I want to be doing with the rest of my life? Is this truly the the limit of the impact that I can have? And then uh, obviously, you know, right, right place, right time. You start looking at the crypto industry. You start looking at all the incredible things uh, that it's impacting and changing around the world. Um, you know, things like cross-border payments, um, things like wealth inequality, right? Like it's actually not always the solution but it's the beginning of solutions to some of the most monumental problems that we face in our world and so one of the things you hear a lot uh, in the bitcoin community um is like fix the money fix the world you know or fix the money fix the problems and i started to realize wow like all of these things i'm passionate about education uh wealth inequality like uh health inequities etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but on the line like it kind of all starts with money if you don't have, you know, you can think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I guess, right? Um, you got this little triangle and up here is like self-fulfillment and you need everything below to reach fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And you start realizing there are billions of people around the world who are un unbanked, who are in authoritarian regimes, who face double or triple digit inflation. And I realized this problem is so much bigger than the US. Uh, and so many of my uh, previous like projects were, were just us centric. And, and even though there's value in that, I just realized like when you start working in money, you are working in something so much bigger than yourself. You are impacting 
it, the nexus point by which everything else in the world is impacted. So that that's really when it, it unlocked. Like, wow, I need to, I need to work in this space. Mm. And then that extended to, okay, I want to work in this space, but like, what can I actually do to positively impact it, right? And so I was looking at my experiences, and I had started a couple companies in the past. My most recent company was just like a digital marketing consulting firm and marketing consulting uh, or mar- marketing agency. And I was like, all right, I've built organizations. I've worked in the nonprofit world. I've done fundraising. I am passionate about education. I'm a little bit of a policy nerd. And I know how digital marketing like works. Like I can do this really well. And so um, long story short, uh, you know, Bitcoin Magazine was looking to get into policy efforts. And uh, around that time, I had a friend working there. Uh, he reached out. He said, hey. Bitcoin Magazine wants to do some policy stuff. We started spewing about it. Uh, a week later, he's like, you want to move to Nashville and work on this policy stuff with me? I said, sure. <laughs> and uh, I dropped, I was running two companies. I was finishing my MBA in Baltimore. I dropped it all. Well, I, I finished my MBA and everything, <laughs> but I immediately moved to Nashville. I'd never been. And, uh, and then eight months later, uh, you know, here we are. So, I can fill in some blanks from there. Yeah, yeah. Hold up, hold up. Incredible. You're 21 years old and you have an MBA. Don't you also have like two undergrad degrees as well? Logan was telling me that you got your undergrad in like a couple of years. Can you tell us about that? That's so interesting. Oh, geez. I wish I could have um, spent two years in college. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I started what? I started school or college at 17. And then, yeah, I just, I just graduated in two years. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. It's, it's nothing. You just loaded it's up on courses, and you were able to graduate in two years. Is that basically how it went? Yeah, I just took a ton of courses. Like my my last semester, I took thirty three credit hours. Okay. Right, so like, wow, whatever the that's like a little more than a year's worth, mm-hmm. right? Wow. And so I just like. That's insane. I don't know. <laughs> it's so motivating and so inspiring to hear your story. Um, you know, appreciate you for sharing it with the audience today. A uh, big thing that was talked about at the conference was the Lightning Network and innovation with Strike and the old payment networks, the Wazaz. We just watched that video, a few clips from it. So the audience is primed. Um, If you could just give some color to this announcement, how significant is it really? I think it's a big deal. Um, You know, TBD, if we reach kind of widespread adoption, cryptos as uh, currency as like actual data. the beginning of that this is the foundation of that right and so if you you watch the announcement you watch the video you understand that like um you know in every single financial transaction that you have there's at least some sort of middleman um if not one you know two or three of those and each of those they're essentially they're, they're rent seeking right they are just preying off of the fact that like you need them for those transactions and they each take their little cut and when you start to realize like the impact of you know decentralized finance or bitcoin or, or any of these kind of tr- trustless systems that don't require these central intermediaries um you realize oh my god american express and visa and mastercard and central banks right they're taking a significant chunk of every single transaction of like all the value that's transacted in the world and they are they're just taking hey three percent of every single one of that right and you start to realize if we had 3% of the world's wealth, of the world's value that's being transacted on a day-to-day basis, and it wasn't just going to these central intermediaries, 
And instead it was going straight from me who wants to pay for something to a merchant who wants to sell me something, right? 3% of the world's wealth of the world's value. Um, that's really what in my mind, like the big innovation is, is like we are unlocking a significant fraction, literally trillions of dollars of value by cutting out these middlemen. And so when you look at the, the waza, you know, that, that moment, the Jack Mallers announcement, what is that? It's cutting out these central intermediaries, taking advantage of, of this amazing tech technology that has instant settlement, um, you know, that, uh, uh, fractions of a penny transaction costs. It's cutting out that middleman and, um, at a large scale, what that means, like it might not mean a lot for like a single transaction, but over trillions of transactions, that is literally trillions of dollars of, of value of money, uh, of resources that we're unlocking in the world, which is pretty incredible to think about. So a common response, if you tell this to someone who's not, uh, you know, cued in would be, isn't strike just replacing themselves as the middleman? What's their incentive? What's their end of the deal? Mm, gotcha. Yeah. And, and this is frankly, uh, you know, I, I don't work at strike. I don't know the exact details of those things. Um, look, Anytime you are basing like uh, innovations off the free market, like there, there is going to be a monetary incentive for, you know, the companies working in that space. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that like, yeah, um, you know, strike doesn't have a, a piece of the pie um, that they're getting. There are lots of, uh, there's lots of speculation about how they're kind of going about that. Um, but essentially most people have kind of come to the conclusion that they're not actually going to be taking, um, you know, away from the transaction, they're going to be doing things kind of behind the scenes with that information that they gather that allow them to create essentially arbitrage um, that uh, that they can profit Interesting. from. Interesting. Yeah. And wow. so again, I think you're asking the wrong guy because this is like, I can tell you all about the policy. I can tell you all about um, kind of the high level of these innovations. But from that perspective, like there are some straight up geniuses who have figured out how to like make this work on a massive scale. Yeah, very cool. And we can turn to the policy because that's something we've also been talking about a lot lately. I know that you've had you know, a hand in working on some policy yourself. If you could just kind of overview um, you know, your experiences in the regulatory space in Washington, D.C. Sure. Um, yeah. So basically, like I said, uh, I started working at Bitcoin Mag like eight or nine months ago. And uh, you know, our CEO, David Bailey, was just kind of like, hey, do some policy stuff. And the guy's brilliant. He he uh, has built one of the most incredible organizations in, in all of Bitcoin and all of, of crypto. Uh, you know, and when it came to policy, he didn't necessarily know what exactly needed to happen. He just needed he knew stuff needed to happen. And so, uh, w you know, we kind of sat there and we're like, all right, what do what do we need to do? So we started integrating with the other players in the space. We started talking to the lobbying organizations um, that are in D.C. So. Organizations like Coin Center, Blockchain Association, um, they're talking to lawmakers. They're educating them on on bills, on legislation. You know, we started to understand. Okay, those organizations exist. They're doing pretty good things. Um, what doesn't exist? And so we we talked to this entire industry and started to understand. All right, like, what's not happening in the space that needs to happen? Um, right now, there's there wasn't significant election spending um, in uh, in the crypto space, right? So we're electing people who don't know anything about crypto or Bitcoin, and we're expecting them to make good Bitcoin policy, like that seems like a losing effort, right? You realize there wasn't uh, kind of a political hub for people 
local voices and, and uh, you know, get involved with this lawmaking, rulemaking, legislation process. Um, and then, you know, we realized there wasn't just like good, high quality information out there. And so we set out to solve each of these problems. And at a very high level, what we're trying to, what we've been doing is we've been talking to lawmakers, we've been doing some education with them. Um, we've been, uh, you know, getting Bitcoin experts to put high quality information in mainstream media so that we can counter some of the misinformation that's out there. Uh, you know, we're getting involved in elections. Um, so, so we're coming at this from all these different fronts because without each one of these pieces of the puzzle, um, you're going to lose to the people who know how DC works, the banks who have hundreds of billions of dollars that they spend literally like every year um, on this kind of stuff. And so you kind of have to like play their game. That's what we realized. So uh, on the note of the election cycle coming up later this year, uh, where do you see crypto falling into place in DC? Is it something of high priority, low priority? Is it going to be a game changer? Could people who adopt crypto policy potentially leverage their platform using crypto to get elected? Uh, who, who are some of the best politicians in this space right now? What are the stakes? What are they fighting for? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the Biden executive order around cryptocurrency signaled to the entire country that, hey, this is something that the government's taking extremely seriously. Um, they're trying to figure out how do we regulate this? They're trying to figure out how do we protect people in the United States, but also how do we leverage this um, so that we can essentially like make sure that the U.S. is a global leader rather than someone like China who's just like rejected it and they're not going to gain the benefits of like a, a you know public cryptocurrency market. China rejected it and now they're leveraging it to create their digital yuan, their central bank digital currency. So they realized that they would have more power if they did it through a government perspective than if they let the market do it. I think the United States, you know, a country founded on on capitalism and free market ideals, hopefully, and this is, you know, one of the things we're trying to push our policymakers to realize is that if we leverage that the free market and the innovation that can come from that, um, yeah. that that will be better than the government just kind of taking hold. And so to your point, like who are the best politicians? We come at this from a nonpartisan approach. If you're a Republican and you and you care about Bitcoin and you're going to protect um, you know, you're not going to pick winners and, and, and you understand the difference between consensus mechanisms, like proof of work, proof of stake, and you're actually going to be able to advocate for those on Congress floor. Like for my work, it doesn't matter to me what the rest of your policy positions are. There aren't enough politicians who understand Bitcoin yet. Like beggars can't be choosers essentially. So mm -hmm. there's someone, Josh Mandel, who's running in Ohio, who's a Republican running for uh, Senate. Um, you know, we're, we're supporting his race. He's a true Bitcoiner. He's a Bitcoin champion. We're hoping that he can fight on the Senate floor for Bitcoin and for like, you know, quality legislation and regulation. And then on the flip side, you have someone like, you know, Matthew Deemer, who's running for house in, in Ohio, who's a Dem, or you have Erica Rhodes, who's running, uh, in California against Brad Sherman, who is like a member of Congress who has publicly called, uh, for his like colleagues to ban cryptocurrency. If you haven't seen that, look up Brad Sherman banning cryptocurrency. And you'll see that we have like sitting members of Congress saying that we should just ban this stuff outright. So Erica Rhodes is running against him. She's a Democrat. She's trying to beat him in a primary. So those are the kinds of candidates that we're supporting people who actually understand Bitcoin, who've made it a core part of their campaign and who understand that Bitcoin isn't just one thing. It's not just some speculative asset. It actually has these underlying values that make it meaningful to them and their constituents. That if we leverage this, the U.S. can be a stronger country as a result, not weaker. So you think that Bitcoin provides the opportunity for both of these parties to kind of come together, agree on one thing and settle some of their differences 
do you see bipartisan activity going on? Are, are people crossing the line to make deals happen in crypto and Bitcoin? Yeah, look up the Financial Innovation Caucus and you'll see Senator Lummis put this together. It's a bicameral, which means across the House and the Senate and bipartisan, which means Democrat and Republican caucus um, of a couple dozen House members and senators um, who are trying to understand this industry, who want to embrace this industry, who want to co-sponsor bills together. You know, Senator Lummis um, introduced a bill uh, around Bitcoin and Bitcoin policy that uh, was co-sponsored by a Democrat, right? So um, Senator Lummis is very, very far right, you know, Trump supporter, things like that. You got co-sponsored from a Democrat, right? So like what I found is Bitcoin and crypto at large, because I know this uh, audience is, is more than just Bitcoin, um, has been this. It's not this dividing line, like everything else in politics. It's actually uh, have somehow found common ground uh, over this technology. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's really exciting. So changing the topic just slightly, Bitcoin versus crypto, right? This is one of the things that, that struck me when I was at the conference was that people pushed back when you said crypto or crypto conference. They said, no, this is Bitcoin. This is Bitcoin conference. Ryan and I talked about this a little bit earlier on the, the show today. My conclusion was basically like Bitcoin needs to succeed and it has its best shot at doing that by, you know, separating itself from all the noise that is the rest of the crypto space. Um, but I'm curious to hear your take, Grant. What is the difference between Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, I think for me, the big realization was it just comes down to a difference in degree versus a difference in kind. Um, Bitcoin is the most, and I say most decentralized cryptocurrency, right? Decentralization is not black or white, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're not centralized or decentralized, right? Most cryptocurrencies, most decentralized finance have some they're somewhere on that spectrum, right? And I think what I realized is uh, Bitcoin is the only system that, like, we don't know who made Bitcoin. There's no, there was no pre-mine, right? And what that's resulted in is the most meritocratic, um, you know, cryptocurrency on the market. Mm -hmm. And that's going to mean different things to different people. Some people might not care about that. Some people are looking at this purely like, what is the utility of this coin, right? And so you might not care that Ripple was entirely pre-mined and that 60% of Ripple is owned by, you know, the, the people who made it. You might not care about that. And that's fine. I think for me, what I realized is over the past couple hundred years in this country, the thousands of years in the world, we have constantly placed our trust in like central institutions. And we've placed our trust in a small group of people to make massive decisions for a large, a large group of people. And time and time again, you get to a point where that's not representative of people's interests. It's not fair and it, and, it, and it misaligns incentives so that those people end up doing things that are better for them and not for the, the broader public. Um, so ultimately, that, that's one of the big differences with, with Bitcoin is, is um, kind of these foundational aspects. And then on the other hand, you know, from a regulatory perspective, there are distinct regulatory challenges. Proof of work is going to be a different fight than like proof of stake, you know, from a regulation perspective. Um, a, from the securities test, Bitcoin is not a security. The SEC has come out and said that. Is Ripple a security? They're figuring that out, right? Is are, are, uh, is Stellar a security, right? Like you can go down the line. And so it personally, like for me, I'm not in the business of picking winners. For my work, I don't care about picking winners. I'm not trying to say Bitcoin 
uh, needs to win so that Ripple can lose or vice versa or whatever. It's just like when we hyper-focus on Bitcoin, we can make the most salient and cogent arguments for Bitcoin. We can make the unique arguments that Bitcoin need, needs as opposed to some other cryptocurrencies. And it keeps us from having to defend like Shiba Inu in the same vein that, we, that we're defending Bitcoin, right? Um, yeah. And so the final thing I'll say is like, I don't think that most other cryptocurrencies are like inherently bad. I think they have specific uses for specific use cases um, and can be valuable in those regards. But I'm also looking at this from like a network effect perspective. And I mean, just think about your phone, right? This, this really helped me understand it. Think about your phone. Look at all the, all the apps you have on your phone, right? How many apps do I have downloaded? I have like 100, 200 apps. How many do I go on? On a, on a daily basis four right five, six if it's a saturday and i'm on tinder right like um <laughs> you know like and i started to realize like okay at a certain point there's going to be a consolidation in this market it's really hard to pick winners you think of the dot-com bubble you know back in the 90s and you start to realize like oh wow if you bet big on like pets.com like you were screwed if you bet big on 99.9 percent .9 of these uh you know sites that were around back then you probably aren't going to be super happy right now um it's bitcoin is the market leader bitcoin has this unique you know network effect that was created by being the first cryptocurrency of this kind um and you can't replicate that and so for me it's i look at that and i go 10 20 30 years from now what can i be confident is going to exist and still have utility i can say that with bitcoin it's very hard for me to say that about almost any other uh, cryptocurrency. There are a couple that, that will probably be around Ethereum, for example. Um, right. I can't tell you with confidence that the others are going to have utility 10, 20, 30, a year or two. So do you see like there's just so much complexity that comes with that? And I think for me personally, it's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to latch on to something that I can understand, that I can have conviction that's going to be around for a long time, and that I see this massive community that's building around it in a way that I don't see with uh, many other crypto projects. Yeah, and, and I certainly think that most crypto projects will not succeed without Bitcoin succeeding first, right? Agreed. Agreed. Ryan, I'm curious curious to hear your take on this, on this discussion. No, I agree. I, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are pretty grounded at this point, but everything else is pretty risky. Uh, Grant, I had a question about lobbying for crypto. I mean, we see that like everyone, not everyone, but a ton of people have so much money in crypto and a lot of influence too. So you would think that lobbying would be pretty big, but it seems like it would be pretty hard to do because there's no centralized company behind it, right? Like it's very easy to organize lobbying for a traditional company. But how does that work with Bitcoin? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, there are there are lobbyists for every industry. A lot of lobbyists, if I'm being straight up, uh, are just like grifters. Um, you know, they they charge a lot of money to go have conversations with lawmakers, and they try to convince you that like citizen can't talk to your lawmakers. So you have to pay me hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so. Um, I think I lost you all. I don't know where the video is, but I'm going to keep talking. Oh, no, we're still here. We're okay, still here. So, yeah. so, um, you know, they, they try to convince you like, Hey, you, you need to be this like policy expert to go talk to your lawmaker. Um, um, I think the reality is that like at its core, all it is, is talking to lawmakers and their staffers about why a bill or piece of legislation might be good for you or might be bad for you. And you don't need to be a lobbying organization to do that. 
you all could go do that. You could, you know, email your representative, you could schedule a, a Zoom call with one of their staffers, and you could explain why uh, a piece of legislation would be good for you personally as a citizen, why it might be good for uh, Benzinga, like whatever it is. And so, um, yes, there are organizations in crypto that have popped up to do lobbying. We, we do it um, a, a little bit, uh, but it's more like I'm more interested, you know, I use the term like lawmaker education because I'm not sitting here like shilling. It, it's not like the oil and gas industry where it's like BP is out here telling you that like oil is actually good for the environment, you know, and they have a direct financial incentive to like say that. Um, you could argue that that's the case for some cryptos. You could argue that that's the case for Bitcoin. Um, but I'm not out here trying to pump my bags. It's uh, more so I'm out here trying to like protect the U.S.'s like interests. I want to live in a world where the U.S. embraces Bitcoin, where I can transact with Bitcoin in the United States, things like that. And so in order to do that, you have to talk to lawmakers who might not understand what proof of work is, who might not understand uh, what a trustless system is, who might see the environmental stuff or might see sanctions evasion and be freaked out. And you have to tell them as someone who lives and breathes this stuff, okay, you might know this about it. Here's what I know about it. And here's how it aligns with what you've been hearing. And maybe let's me in the middle and like figure out some relative like truth, right? So lobbying sounds scary. It's really nothing more than just talking to lawmakers, giving them your perspective and giving them information that maybe they haven't been introduced with before. Uh, when there's a ton of money in lobbying, that's when the incentives get misaligned. And frankly, I wish there were a lot, there was a lot less money in politics at the point where this is the game. Uh, you just have to try to do it in the most ethical and honest way possible. And that kind of just takes like, I don't know, you have to believe in yourself that you're not going to turn into a scumbag in this world, I guess. <laughs> Grant, what's at stake with the US CBDC? Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I, this is another loaded question. Long story short, um, I think anyone who trust the US government to not misuse or abuse their powers once you give them that power has just not been like paying attention to history. And this is a someone who like, I want to believe in our government. I want to believe in our politicians. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of them now. <laughs> and I don't trust them. Um, and on top of that, I'm, I was a history major in undergrad. Just go look back at history. Just go down the Wikipedia of like U.S. scandals, right? Uh, look at the Patriot. Yeah. That's a great example, right? Something that was created to protect us, um, uh, protect us against terrorism. That was just mm -hmm. absolutely abused by our government to um, abuse our private. You can. There are hundreds of examples, and so I'm not going to sit here and defend my take that like the U.S. government could. Uh, abuse its power when it's given it because history has just shown that. So so that's kind of the foundation of this. Why does that matter? Well, a US CBDC would expand the government's financial tool belt. It would give them the opportunity more instantaneous actions around uh, how our money works, how our money, who can spend money, who can receive money, things like that. And I'm just not necessarily in the business of thinking that our government is always going to be the best actor and who's the who, bad actor, right? Um, it's an arbitrary distinction. And I think it all comes down mm -hmm. to like, when you have a small group of people making that decision, uh, 
you have to really, really, really trust those people. And the last thing I'll say is like, if you look at our Federal Reserve, you look at things like quantitative easing, a lot of people look at our government's interest rates, they look at these things like how we control the economy, they think our government has it all figured out, right? They think like, oh, they just raised interest rates, they know exactly what that's going to do. Dude, our government's out here, like, they're, they're kind of just LARPing, like a little bit, like they're just like, they said inflation was transitory. I mean, come on. Dude, they, they just, they're figuring it out. Um, they are not, mm-hmm. yes, there are probably brilliant people working in the Federal Reserve, working the, in the Treasury. I have no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But to think that they know the impact of every single economic action that they're taking, um, if that were true, we wouldn't have had these, like the Great Recession. We wouldn't have had what happened during COVID. We wouldn't have had, like, I guess my point is that we place a lot of trust in the centralized institution and this centralized institution, even if it has created some good in this country and, and, and created regulation that has helped a lot of consumers, like I'm not going to say the feds all bad. I will say that like they've gotten some big things really wrong. And so you have to ask yourself, do we continue with the system that is just shown to be broken and that they're still figuring out as they go and like experimenting literally with like just everyday Americans money. Like that's what these are in many ways experiments. And do we want more of that? Do do we want those people to continue um, to make those decisions that impact you and me and don't really impact like the people actually making the decisions? So a CBDC allows the government to have more power, more control over our money and what we can do and what we can spend with it. If you want to live in the world where the government has more uh, control over how you can spend your money, then like that's you know good for you. Um, that's just not necessarily a world that I want to live in. Yeah, I, I can't say that I would necessarily like to either. The one, the one thing that that scares me, and I know we we are out of time, so we won't get into it now, is like if it's not our government, will it be another government, and are they less trustworthy? Right. So that's where I see maybe the U.S. turning to Bitcoin to just avoid that problem. Um, but you know, we'll see. That's going to take a lot of minds changing. Um, but this was insightful conversation today grant thank you so much for joining us um i want to give you the floor for a second if there's any way people can connect with you connect with your work support your causes or or find out more about them um where should they go sure uh follow me on twitter it's just grant underscore mccarty uh reach out to me on there dm me if you're interested you know involved in a bunch of projects so like um Anything in the Bitcoin policy world, either I'm working on it or I can connect you with someone who's working on it. Uh, one thing I will make clear is like, you know, I, I work in Bitcoin, uh, not crypto broadly. So like, please, you know, don't come ask me about like NFT regulation. Um, not because I'm opposed to those, just because that's not my domain expertise. And so like, I'm happy to put you in contact with other people. I'm happy to like help you out in any way I can. Uh, but yeah, follow me on Twitter. Uh and and we can kind of go from there and uh if you're interested in any sort of these political efforts i'd love to talk to you more about it love to talk to you more about bitcoin and uh you know hopefully have longer conversations with people who are willing to engage with in good faith so thanks so much for having me on thanks grant thank you grant everybody go follow him we'll talk to you soon have a good one see you all right ryan i thought that was awesome we are out of time today i'm gonna roll the new outro peace out guys we'll see you on monday
ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.